Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Soccer writers provide an interesting insight on the game that more often than not we watch on TV. Sure, we can see players doing certain formations, running certain plays and stuff like that, but sometimes a deeper look for things that might not necessarily be on the pitch is almost necessary to understand what we're seeing. So today we're going to revisit an interview I had with John Nicholson, who is a writer, a novelist, and pretty much everything of the sort, and we're going to get into a little bit more about that, but... A lot of John's famous books, such as We Ate All the Pies or Can We Have Our Football Back, are great-selling works, and he gains a lot of support in terms of his sales and his audience that follows him now. But outside of writing nonfiction uh, extended works, he also has news and blogs for Football 365, which just provides his insights on the game as a whole. But as I already mentioned, he's much more than a soccer writer. He's also a t-shirt salesman. He he helps with a rock and roll website, and we're going to get into that more in the, into our conversation. So hope you all enjoy, and uh, make sure to follow John Nicholson on Twitter at Johnny the Nick. He's a great guy to follow and uh, a great writer to read as well. John, uh, so like I already mentioned, you you kind of expose yourself to a lot of different outlets. Could you just uh, just bullet bullet list just uh, what are the various things that people might find you doing on any given day? <laughs> well, it's a very day every day. Um... My primary writing role is as a football writer for Football 365 um, and for the Irish Examiner, who I do a weekly thing for. Um, so I'm writing sort of four days a week about football. Um, also in those days, I am running um, T-Shirts 365, which is a football T-shirt website, and um, DJTs, which has been going for 21 years now, and uh, we design rock T-shirts. So those things all happen concurrently, really, um, with all of that. On top of that, my partner Dawn is an artist, so we run websites which sells her art as well, and so there's all of that to update too. And uh, if if I've got any spare time, I also <laughs> write novels and uh, football books. So and I've just uh, published uh, the latest one, um, Was Football Better in the Old Days? So there's a lot of things going on all the time, and um, there is, I work 12, 14-hour days almost every day. I'm not one for sitting watching TV and, you know, I just, I, I just, I mean, I say work, but it's not really work in the sense of it being something I hate doing. It's something I'm really passionate about. So, you know, I'm in a very fortuitous position, really, to get paid to do something I love. Um, and I've been doing that for 21 years now. 
So all the, all the football writing you do, you say you don't watch too much TV, but I think a lot of the time, at least for my side of it, inherently we have to we have to watch TV in order to watch certain games. So is that true for you and the fact that you do have to watch games? Or is your, more, is your writing more of just analyzing other kinds of things or editorial pieces on things that don't necessarily involve results or anything of that sort? Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually, because... Um... Obviously, I do watch games on TV, or at least I have them on while I'm doing writing or whatever it is else I'm doing. Um, But a lot of my writing isn't so concerned with the day-to-day of football. I feel as if there are loads of uh, writers, fantastic writers, who analyse football in in a kind of granular detail. And that's not really my gig, really. You know, know, the whole thing with tactics and um, positions and everything to do with the kind of granular detail of football... Is something I think is well covered. So I tend to write more about cultural issues around football, um, about its stories and um, issues and problems that come up because of football, you know, around ownership, around finance, around things like mental health, um, misogyny and things like that. I mean, I, I write about all of those things, really. I mean, Sarah, my editor, often says I'm the only football writer who doesn't write about football. <laughs> and there is some element of truth in that, really. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but outside of football writing, um, correct me if I'm wrong. You're also a a mystery writer. And how do you how do you how do you mix those in? How do you go from writing about football and like the things outside of the game itself, and then switching over and pivoting to mystery writing, which, uh, for, at least for from my perspective, doesn't really have too many relationships with it. Well, interestingly enough, um, I make my because uh, uh, the crime novels that I write are. Um, all of the same three central protagonists in each of them. And uh, Nick, my sort of main guy, is uh, a Middlesbrough fan, like me, is my age and has an enormous record collection, just like me. So I find it quite easy to slip into his character to write things. But you're absolutely right. It's a wholly different discipline, writing about football and the issues around football, than it is making up stories. It's like it uses an entirely different muscle and um, some days, and in fact, I'm going through this a little bit at the moment, I just can't get writing the story. I'm in too much of a, a kind of factual delivery mode. And when you're in that sort of sensible mode, it's very hard to, um, I find, to tap into the creativity that you need in order to manufacture stories and characters and speech. And all of this, it's very, it's very much a kind of different discipline. And uh, so sometimes flipping between the two is is really tricky. Um, I've I've got a bit of writer's block at the moment, which is the first time it's happened to me in twelve years, and um, I just feel as though I can't. I'm, I, what I'm trying to do to write through it, I'm trying to write scenes for the new book, for the new novel, and uh, later I'll stitch them all together. But I just I'm just writing scenes that I'm really interested in writing, you know, trying to get through it in that sense. But novel writing is really strange because it's a it's a discipline which is very creative. You obviously have to dream up stories, characters, and interrelate them all. But it is also very practical in that you have to have a plot that goes from A to B to C to D. And so you have to be very disciplined. And once you've written the story, you have to go back and make sure it all justifies itself. And it isn't just, it, there isn't any enormous holes in the plot. Which, I mean, I was watching something a while ago and there was a huge hole in the plot in this in the story, uh, in the movie. And uh, I, I thought, surely somebody must have spotted that. And that's the thing that terrifies me most of all, is that the fact I've 
I've asserted something, but I haven't justified it with the rest of the plot in the book. Mm -hmm. So it's hard work doing all of that stuff, actually. That's the real kind of meat and potatoes of, of, of fiction writing, I find. Yes, so I, bring I do bring football into the stories as well sometimes. Okay, so there you go. So how'd you, how'd you get into mystery writing? Was it always just like a hobby of yours that you decided to take a little bit further? Or was it something that you realized one day, like, I want to try something different. Let me try doing this instead. Well, um, what happened was in 2012, I, we, me and Don sold DJTs. Um, and uh, that left us with about half a million quid. And uh, we, didn't, we just thought we'd take about five years off and develop other careers and that's what we did we developed a write, separate writing career um our fiction writing career and um and don's really got established as an artist um and that's how it all started now at the time in 2012 2013 i i i think this was probably because i was 50 49 50 at the time i developed an incredible um depressive period uh where i was really really depressed for about six to eight months much of the time i didn't really realize how depressed i was um and that was one of the motivations to start writing was because i wanted to kind of do self-therapy which sounds a bit weird and a bit narcissistic but i just wanted to know why i had this enormous black hole in my existence and why i felt as if i was peering into the void and it was a nameless sort of almost physical pain of melancholy and uh uh, and writing the books helped me get through that. I wrote the first three, uh, which was Teesside Steel, Queen of the Teas, and Teesside Mist. I wrote all of those straight off the bat, three in about nine months, and I was just pouring out of me. And uh, and I released them as a trilogy altogether because I I run a publishing company as well. I forgot to tell you about that. I run Head Publishing, which is a, a publishing company we set up just to publish my work, essentially. Uh, and I released those three together. Um, and they immediately took off, and they were really popular. I mean, relatively popular, at least, I should say. I don't want to make great claims to them. But they sold a few thousand copies. And because that, we were publishing them, we, were, we weren't just getting a royalty. We were getting the cost after production, which on a sort of nine-quid book is about six quid, 6.50. So it actually proved quite lucrative quite early on. Um, and I suddenly thought, because all this lovely positive vibes is coming in, um, uh, I could obviously do this, you know. And now it took me a long time to get over it, the imposter syndrome of being a writer because the time I grew up in and uh, where I grew up, people like me weren't writers. And I know it sounds silly to say it, but it's just like it felt like it wasn't me. I, f I felt like I was a fake writer all the time. Even like going back 20 years ago when I started off Football 365, I thought I would get found out at some point that I wasn't really a writer at all. I was just bluffing it, you know. And it, it literally took me until about 2016, 2017 to really finally get over that. And I thought, you know, I've got, I've now written 20 books. <laughs> so if I'm not a writer, I don't know who the hell is, you know? <laughs> um, so, you know, I finally did get over it, but it was, it's a, it was a long walk that man. It really was, you know? So that moment of realizing that you overcame that imposter syndrome, it really was just like a, a moment where you had some kind of realization. It wasn't just like something that you slowly gradually came. It was just like pop. And then you realize, you know, I am doing this and here I am. I'm an actual writer and people love my work. As you say, I mean, you sold thousands of copies of your books. Yeah. It, it, it's, it was a sort of gradual process, I suppose, actually, but more just simply out of the fact that people treated me as though I was a writer. 
And that suddenly, so at some point, it, it just dawned on me in about 2016 that, that, you know, if I call myself a writer, I'm not fooling anybody. That is what I do. Um, I'm aware that that does sound rather a bit pathetic, really. But I think a lot of people who come from working class or underprivileged backgrounds do feel this imposter syndrome. You feel, feel as if it's not the sort of thing that people like me do. And um, I hope that future generations don't feel like that in the same way because it is very debilitating, really, and it limits what people can do um, because they just think, well, it's, it's that, that isn't a profession that I've seen people like me do, you know? I once went into, in connection to um, working on the novels, I went into a jail in Stockton where I grew up. I grew up in Stockton, not in the jail. And, <laughs> uh, uh, and asked to talk to prisoners about writing. And it was a really eye-opening experience because the, all of them were from very dodgy backgrounds. I mean, there were some really bad people that I don't hesitate to say that. But it was really fascinating because none of them realised that their life stories, which had led them to this point in jail, and, some, and, and I, we haven't got time to go into it here, but some fantastic stories, I mean, really funny stories as well, how their life of crime had ended up in jail. And um, I said to them, look, if you were to write all of this into a story, into a novel, this is what people want to read because you've done things that not people don't do. You know, you've experienced a part of life that most people don't experience. And um, there was two lads that were in there. I mean, obviously the, the reading age amongst them is about age eight or nine. I mean, they, and they are, you know, it was, this was part of a literacy course, in fact. Um, but the two lads who were, the, who were the, the most articulate have actually gone on to write whether as a consequence of what I said, I don't know, but apparently they have had things published. And I, and I think there's a great untapped uh, uh, well of creativity amongst people who aren't traditionally the kind of people who write books, you know? And you do, obviously lots of working class people do get through, you know, people like Martina Cole, but we never know how many people are put off by the whole middle class, what I call the linen suit, um, arts kind of elite, who are, um, are just very, very not people like me. I can't tell you how not like me they are. <laughs> so, you know, and in fact, I often don't even respect you, really, because you're not part of their gang. So, you know, I think we lose a lot of creativity from the working class because of that, because people just get put off, it gets strangled at birth, you know? Mm -hmm. So flipping back to football and that era, or that side of writing, what when did you start getting into that? Uh, was it something? Was that something that you always wanted to do when you were younger? And obviously, everybody that watches the sport growing up says, "I want to do something related to that in the future." So, is that true for you? And the fact that you wanted to uh, write about football or anything like that? Yeah, it started really. Um, I started doing it for money in two thousand, November two thousand. But it started about five or six years earlier when I read um, Harry Pearson's book, The Far Corner. Now, Harry is from the same part of the country that I'm from. He's from Great Ayton near Middlesbrough, which is about eight, ten miles away from where I grew up. And um, his uh, writing in that really so it expressed so much about my life with football, both the culture of football and actual football itself, and the uh, dissonance he felt between having growing up from a working class background, but now being essentially having a middle class lifestyle. And, uh, and that expressed so much my kind of experience in life. Um, the one particular part in the book where he's eating uh, alfalfa sprouts in a sandwich going to a game. 
that perfectly expressed that kind of those two worlds rubbing up against each other. And um, uh, I thought, I, I'd love to do that. I'm sure I could do that. And that was really what sparked my interest in that. Now, from that point, I, I, I wrote several things that never got published in the, in the sort of mid-90s. And, uh, and, and then it kind of felt went on the back burner a bit. But then Football 365 started up in 1997. And I used to write in letters. They used to have a letters page way back then. I used to write in letters. And uh, Steve Anglesey, who was the editor at the time, really liked them. And uh, long story short, they offered me a column. And, uh, and that just evolved into doing three pieces a week. And uh, that's how I got started. And I will forever be grateful to Steve and uh, his, um, his, his kind of further up the chain was Howard Johnson. And who I still, actually, it's another thing string to my bar I forgot to tell you about. I actually work for a rock magazine called Rock Candy Magazine. I do all their social media and I write um, pieces for them occasionally as well. That's about rock and metal of the 70s and 80s, essentially. And uh, Howard's the editor of that, because he moved on from football. So it's all a bit nepotistic in that way. But um, yeah, and they gave me a chance. And I just I just said, write what you want to write. I mean, you know, you could. And in fact, to this day, in 21 years of writing for them, Nobody's ever said to me, Sarah, the editor who's been editor now for almost all of that time, has never said to me what I should write or what I shouldn't write. They've all just said, write what you want to write. And I just, that's an incredible privilege to be able to do that. You know, I don't think many people have that degree of freedom, really, you know. So the writing what you want to write, that for you, at least for Football 365, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is... Uh, issues or any kind of problems outside of what we see on the pitch. So it could be things related to man or uh, you know ownership or any kind of uh, scandals, issues of that sort. Why do you write about those things as opposed to results? Is it just because you know the results are something that we see all the time and you want to do something different, or did you find interest in the things that uh, happen behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean it's twofold really. Firstly. I felt as if, and I've always felt like this, that there are a lot of people doing versions of match reports. Um, so there are people analysing games, analysing tactics, what happened when, to whom. And I didn't really want to get into all of that because I think I enjoy the... I, I used to flippantly call it the making up things side of writing. In other words, not being so confined to the facts as stated, you know, Jones scored in the 84th minute, you know. I, I, I like the idea of thinking things up and working up ideas and philosophies, if you like. Um, and Football 365 has been brilliant for letting me do that. I mean, you know, I, I like to think that even now I bring something that other people don't bring to it and it fills a gap that would, would not be filled otherwise. And... Um, but I think more than that is what really interests me and has always interested me, and this only really became obvious to me later in life, was, was it, I've loved about football isn't the actual football so much as everything that goes around it. So like when I was a kid and I'd go to the borough, um, I loved the whole thing about going and, and uh, the travelling there, being in the crowd, standing on the, on the whole gate, all of that and, and, and experiencing what that was like obviously couldn't happen without the football but it was 50% of the experience. And, uh, and so I've sort of took that um, thing into um, my writing, really. I mean, all through the 80s and 90s, I would listen to lots of football-related programmes, uh, 606 on, uh, like phone-ins on uh, Radio 5 Live, 
lots of different things. And that always interested me. Talking about the game always really interested me more than analysing the game, if you see what I mean. And um, I, I think that, so I think when I came to be a professional writer, professional football writer, that was quite a natural um, pocket for me to inhabit, really. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of um, something I had to force. It came very naturally. It, it was obviously my... Um, it was my instinct to do it like that, really. Uh, especially as I got a little bit older, my early years of writing were far more, um, what's to say, wild and strange. There were some very strange things <laughs> happened largely due to my uh, levels of intoxication at the time. Uh, but like certainly for the last 10, 12, 13 years, you know, I, I think as I've grown older, I think the, the cultural issues around football are such uh, both uh, reflect uh, societal things that are happening, but also often are a driver of certain things too, a uh, driver for change or for um, uh, reactionaryism. So it's really, yeah, I think it's very innate to me now. You know, it really is. And I still, even now after 21 years writing three pieces a week, I still love it. I'm still, I mean, I said to Sarah the other day, she said, if you ever want to have a, a day off, I've never not filed a copy, never missed a deadline. I've, I even I tell the story that in uh, 2006, I was traveling through uh, the Nevada desert uh, on an Amtrak and we broke down outside of Reno. And uh, I was standing in the middle of the, <laughs> in the Mohawk desert with a phone, trying to get a connection to upload my uh, article to Sarah back in, in London, as it was at the time. And uh, like, I, and I was, cause I was so dedicated to getting it done. You know, I, I've always felt it was a huge privilege. I never wanted to abuse it. Um, so like even now, um, she says, so I was, you know, could just take a, take a Wednesday off to do something. But as I always say, the river always seems to flow past my door. I've always got something to say, something I want to write, you know? And, um, so it's never really a struggle. I actually feel generally in life, you know, as the life of a writer, if writing, whatever it is you're writing is really difficult, it's probably not for you. It should be quite easy, quite easy to get it out. Harder to get it to be really good, mm -hmm. really hard to be really good. But to get something out and down, that should be quite easy. You know, <laughs> I yeah. don't know if that's a controversial view, but it's, <laughs> I, I always find all the things that I struggle with are things that I'm I'm no good at writing. So don't do it. You know. Mm -hmm. So before we get into the items that I've asked you to bring in, I want to. You mentioned that you your days are consistently twelve to fourteen hour days. I think that might surprise a, a few people, especially considering that people might think of writers as they just sit down, write, bang out a story or two, and then call it a day. But for you, what does a twelve to fourteen hour day consist of on, on average? Okay, well, I will get up um, at about uh, these days. It's about seven o'clock. Uh, because I'm not, I'm sober these days, so it's now seven o'clock, and uh, I will do um, if it if it's a, a, a day before a piece, I, my Monday piece will be written on a Sunday, so I'll spend two or three hours writing that. Sometimes a bit longer. Um, I will spend two or three hours doing all of my media posts for Rock Candy magazine, um, and it depends what other sort of work is on at, the, at that time. There may be some design work to do or some admin. So I've got to do the accounts and stuff like that too. Um, I will do uh, two or three hours in an evening writing on a book if I'm if that's if I've got a book on the go, which I usually do have. So it tends to it, I tend to do it in two or three hour blocks, and then I try to get up and go somewhere and do, you know, go walking out here in the the woods at the back of the house. 
uh, just to try and break the day up a bit because otherwise you're just sitting on your backside for literally like 10 hours not moving and that's not mm -hmm. healthy. So I tend to do two or three hour blocks, give it a rest, watch a game or listen to something, whatever it is, and then go back to it. All right, so, John, like I said, I did ask you to bring in a, a couple of things. I was wondering if you had any of those uh, on hand for you, or for me right now. Oh, right, uh, I don't. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> um, I, I, I've I, got one thing I wanted to show you. I, as I said to you in the email, I don't have uh, photos and things. Yeah. Or any memorabilia, really, as such. I just have books and stuff. So, But I have... My certificate were for um, anyway. Just a minute, come back. Hold hold this thought. We'll do. <laughs> right, I'll just show you that. Now this is my um, award for being nominated for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year 2010 uh, for my book We Ate All the Pies, and uh, that is one of my proudest possessions because you know we were talking about imposter syndrome and. Um, that was one of the things that helped me start to believe I could be a writer because it was the first book I'd ever produced. And um, it's a basically about the culture of football and why we love it so much. It's about, as I was saying before, it's about the 50% of football that isn't the actual kicky-kicky, you know? And um, uh, it, because that had been long-listed for the William Hill Sports Book of the Year, which was is a, and still is a really prestigious prize, um, it meant that independent people, a panel of people independently, had judged it as being worthwhile. Uh, of all the hundreds of books that have been published that year, that mine was one of the best ones. And when you have imposter syndrome, I can't tell you how important it is for people who have no vested interest in liking your work actually say they like it. It's an amazing feeling. And that really filled in a lot of my insecurities. That really was a, that was the first time, although it was some years later before I really self-identified as a writer, that was the, what set me on the path to doing it. So it's a really important thing because of that. So they sent me a certificate. They even framed it for me. So that was nice. And uh, I still have it on my wall and uh, in my writing areas. Um, so I still treasure it, even though it is now 11 years ago. For those that may not be aware, what is the premise of We Ate All the Pies? And just in general, like a, what could people learn or gather from reading that? Well, the subtitle is How uh, Football Swallowed Britain Whole. And what I did in it really was to try and see why football is the most popular sport. Or what, what is it that holds us to it, even despite um, a lot of times... Um, falling out of love with it. Um, you know, why do we keep coming back for more? What is it that ties us to the sport? And why do we feel so passionately about it? And this was actually something I picked up in my latest book, uh, which is called, um, Was Football Better in the Old Days? And that, actually these two things kind of like are the bookends of the same story in some ways. And um, I mean, why, the, so my sort of conclusions about it all, and I think that this is probably what most people feel, even if they don't really um, realise to do, is that football gives us a community and it gives us um, self-identity. And very few things in life can do that so effortlessly for the price of a ticket, you know, or for, or for watching something on the TV. And it gives us a kind of structure to life as well. And uh, I'm... I feel as if life, I mean, this is just my perspective on it, but to me, life feels very chaotic. 
I fear things getting out of control all the time. So it isn't as though I feel on top of everything. Uh, I think this is partly because I'm a writer and because I spend all my days just thinking things up. So I don't know if ever telling me what to do. I've never had a job uh, where I've worked for somebody um, on a, anything other than a freelance basis. So I've never had to go into an office and do a job. And, um, and that is, you know, now I'm 60, that's quite a long time. So I fear chaos and football gives me a kind of skeleton upon which to hang my life. And I think that's the same for a lot of people. You know, that's the beauty of the 3 p.m. on Saturday um, um, kind of tradition is that you always know where you, where you were. You know, you always know where you should be. Yeah. I, I Even now, I, I, I wake up in the morning, I don't know what day it is. I, and the first thing I do is I think back to what was the game last night. So that I, uh, yesterday when I woke up, I thought, uh, what was on last night? Oh, yeah, Champions League, Wednesday. So this today must be Thursday. <laughs> and this morning I woke up, think Europa League, it's Thursday, you know. So it does really give you a structure, uh, which which is uh, really important, I think, in life, um, you know, to give life some kind of direction. Otherwise, you're just drifting around. And this is why when the football season closes, some like really mad football people like me feel rather bereft because we don't, what we're supposed to do, you know, the structure's all gone. <laughs> you know, you're looking for the fixture list to give your life some meaning back again. So, yeah, yeah. So that I mean, so the whole book was about these aspects, cultural aspects, really, of life. You know, and and the, I, I dealt with things like um, memorabilia and football sh- strips, how they are, how they tie us to uh, supporting the club. You know, as Jerry Seinfeld once said, ultimately we're just supporting laundry because everybody else goes. It's only the shirt that remains. And uh, I just, uh, as I looked at that, I looked at things like food through the ages, uh, of, of things that sold up football, all sorts of different stuff and TV and how it's covered and everything. And all of these things go together to bind us to the game in a way that I think we take so for granted. A lot of time we don't even realise it. So that's why I wrote the book, to try and unpack it all, if you like. You talk about how it provides structure, uh, football does, but I think it also provides, like you said, a sense of community. And it's just a part of our lives growing up into when we get older. Um, So I want to ask you personally, is there any moment watching the game or anything like that where you realized how much you love the sport? Or is there like a moment where you were at a game that just stuck with you for whatever reason? Well, that the most incredible um, football experience I had was uh, when Middlesbrough were playing in the um, UEFA Cup. And we got to the final, if you remember, in 2006. Along that way, in the knockout games of that um, tournament, we lost one leg of every knockout leg. So we, we we had to come back from behind all the time. We always lost one of the legs, still got to the final. And the, the, the second time that happened, that happened um, uh, initially in the round of six, no, the quarterfinals against Basel. Uh, and we came back and won 4-2 at home. And then against Stourbukarest, when we came back and won 4-3 at home, that second one against Stourbukarest is the most transcendent moment of my football life. And uh, it's something really weird happened that day. Um, and you've got to remember, I'm a bit of an old head. So when, it, how, when you think about how I think about these things, but I don't know if you ever have this experience, <clears throat> but when you are watching a game you suddenly go forward in time by about one or two seconds. You know what's going to happen. 
I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Well, when Macaroni scored the fourth goal for Borough that day in the 89th minute, um, I saw Downing cross that ball and I knew it was going to be a goal before it was a goal. And I, I was up celebrating that goal before Macaroni did it. It was a, like a diving header to head it in. And it was just so obvious to me that that was going to happen. And it's like a, t- a form of time travel. You go forward by about a, a two seconds and then reality catches up and then it's goal. And that was just the most intense thing. I mean, I know that sounds very trippy and, and cosmic, but that was really much how it felt. And also that communal experience when a whole ground knows what's going to happen. Like we, you know, we were we were two nil down at home after the being one nil down after the first leg. We had to score four goals to, to go through. By the time we scored the third goal, everybody assumed we would get four. I mean, everybody. Nobody thought that, oh, we'll just fall short. Even our traditional cynicism as Borough fans had <laughs> evaporated. And I think we all, then we got to the 89th minute and thought, well, we are going to score. I'm sure we are going to score. And of course we did. And uh, so, I mean, I think that game for a lot of Middlesbrough fans would be the one that they always went back to. I mean, we won the League Cup in 2004. That was brilliant. But somehow this was so intense. And the fact that it happened twice in a row, man, that was a special day. That was the final for us when we lost. We got beat 4-0 in the final, but it didn't kind of matter because we'd sort of won anyway, you know? So mm-hmm. that definitely, that. yeah, that's a golden moment, man. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, you already talked about how Jerry Seinfeld mentioned, uh, you know, we're all supporting laundry. Um, and yeah. that kind of applies to you. You have uh, the, the T-shirt company, uh so well, how do you get into that? Um, going from a writer, a football writer, and then Mr. Writer later, how do you, how do you start being a, a, going into the T-shirt industry? Well, that, that's related to Football 365 as well. So we, if, uh, we go back to the year 2000, and uh, Football 365 w- w- wanted to open a shop selling football-related memorabilia. Um, and um, I said that we would design some T-shirts. So we did, and we mocked them up. I took them down to show them to Howard and Steve, and they, they, they were all, all for it. So with me and another lad called Dave Tarbox, we started to design shirts for Football 365, and they were sold on the website. And uh, it did quite well. In fact, it did very well, particularly at Christmas, for about two years. And towards the end of that period of time, Dawn had said to me, look, we should do this ourselves. You're not working for somebody else. Uh, because we would just get a small cut of every sale. We should set up our own and, and, you know, do it for ourselves. I said, yeah, but, you know, I don't know. Um, what should we do? You know, what what will be our, what we're going to sell, you know? And she said, well, you know loads about rock music because I'm, I'm a huge record collector. I've got a huge album collection of vinyl. Uh, and she said, you know everything there is to know about rock music, so why don't we do it on rock music? So <laughs> long story short, that's what we did. Started in October 2002. And uh, I think to date we have sold about, I think I did a rough guesstimate on it. I think we've sold about three and a half million shirts since wow. then. So it's, it's incredible. We've had our ups and downs, believe me. As anybody that stayed with us in Las Vegas in 2009 can attest, uh, we have gone off the rails several times. <laughs> but, uh, what we did was when we sold it in 2012, we sold it on a kind of installment basis to this other guy. Um, and it turned out that after about oh, across five years, but uh, he turned out he couldn't, pay all of them he paid about three quarters of it and, he, and for reasons that are too complicated to explain he couldn't pay the rest of it so in uh, under the terms of our contract it fell back to me and dawn to take ownership of it again so we did that in about 2018 yeah february 2018 
and uh, uh, and we just relaunched it all and still doing it now. Yeah, so it's all right. It's 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 an interesting business to be involved in because it's obviously plugs into one of my major passions in life. But also, um, you can do it at home. Um, we don't have to leave the house to make a living. So in the recent with the pandemic, that's been extremely useful. You know. And then going back to to writing, you say you always have a book that you're kind of working on or just, uh, you know, getting going. Is there anything uh, you got working right now that uh, you've been working on for uh, a little bit? Um, I've started um, the 16th Nick Geimer book. That's my my um, uh, character. Um, uh, so I'm just, as I say, I was, I'm getting a little bit of writer's block on that at the moment, but I've got about 10,000 words of, of that done. I, I think that'll see the light of day in the spring. I just finished, or uh, just published about a month ago, um, uh, uh, Was Football Better in the Old Days? Or Is Now Better Than Back Then? And uh, that that was there was a long birth of that because it took me quite a while through the pandemic and everything to get that all together. But I was quite pleased with that. So my sort of next two or three months will be spent promoting that. Um, I should have a copy of it here to show you, but of course I don't because I'm not professional like that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I could get one. But um, yeah, so I'll, that's essentially what I'll be. I mean, this is the weird thing about being a kind of one-man band with um, uh, publishing your own work and such. I mean, it's, it isn't... Uh, I mean, it's quite commonplace now for people to self-publish. Probably when we started doing it about 10 years ago, it was less so. But I've always gone about it in a very as professional way as I could. So I, I have an editor who I pay to edit the books. I have proofreaders who are paid to proofread the books. And uh, Robert, my editor, is actually American. He lives um, in Ohio, um, though he's a big Anglophile. And he really keeps me on the straight and narrow with everything. You know, he, he knows all of the things to do with punctuation that I never paid attention to in class. Um, so he keeps me right from that perspective. So we work together quite closely on things. I will submit a first draft to him and he'll have a look it over and he'll say, this bit's not no good, you should get rid of that bit. Um, he says, you've, you've gone off the rails here, you're swearing too much at this point. Well, why have you put sex in here? You don't need sex in here. Uh, so <laughs> he's good. He's like a, a kind of benevolent father, really. So, yeah. But And there's always something on the go, man, always something. I mean, if I've got space, I will fill it, you know. That is my kind of motto in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, pretty appreciate you coming on. I'll wrap up with this. Uh, you mentioned Football 365. Where else can people find what you're doing or where they can find any of your various kinds of work? Okay, well... Um, I know there's a long list to choose from, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Yeah. <laughs> I've got half an hour. <laughs> so, to find any of my books is johnnicholsonwriter.co.uk um, and all of my current work, all the books I've ever published are all there. Um, and obviously Football 365 on uh, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays you'll find my stuff Um, if you want football t-shirts it's uh, t-shirts365.com or music shirts which is djts.com and if you want to read my uh, posts uh, for Rock Candy Magazine just look for uh, Rock Candy Magazine on Facebook and everything that's on the Facebook page all comes out of my head and you'll see me having photos of me holding up obscure albums from 1973 that nobody else has heard of, but which I recommend to people. So I do all of that side of things as well. So, yeah, I'm all over everywhere. You can't escape me, man. I'm like the wind, <laughs> just everywhere. All right, John. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on, and I, I wish you the best going forward in all those different ventures you got going on. 
Oh, thanks, man. That's kind of you. Nice to speak to you. Yeah, for sure. Have a good one. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.